from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Senesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. It's time for Senior Salute Radio. Senior Salute Radio is presented by the Estate and Asset Protection Law Firm of Victoria Collier. And hello and welcome to Senior Salute Radio, presented by the Estate and Asset Protection Law Firm of Victoria Collier. Mike Salmon here alongside the host, Victoria Collier. And Senior Salute Radio brings timely information to leading age boomers and seniors addressing the issues of aging, caregiving, and maintaining quality of life. And today on the program, we're going to be discussing guardianship and conservatorship through the court system. Easy for me to say. I'm having trouble speaking today, and and so am I. And so are uh, you. Hi, Mike. Yeah. So this uh, spring is really being hard on my uh, vocal cords with the um, pollen and everything. So you're likely to hear me say this, you know, sound like this a few episodes. But um, I'm going to let you do most of the talking. How's that sound? We're gonna we're gonna soldier <laughs> through. Actually, you're gonna end Sorry. up doing most of the talking because you're the expert here. So we'll right. we'll soldier through. But between all your speaking engagements and court cases and all of the things that you do and a radio show, um, but yes. So uh, guardianship conservatorship most people want to avoid court at all costs yet for some reason it seems like everybody ends up going to court um, especially when they seek you know wind up seeking guardianship or conservatorship over a loved one why is that why does it seem like the courts always have to get involved well I think it's interesting that I don't have a voice today because and this is the topic because people will seek out guardianship and or conservatorship uh, for people who cannot uh, manage either their own finances for themselves because of a physical or uh, cognitive disability, um, and that would be the conservatorship, or if they can't make decisions for themselves with regard to their health care or where they're going to live uh, due to either physical or cognitive disabilities. So um, why I think it's interesting today is because I think I need some help with somebody voicing what my opinion is on certain things today because, you know, physically I'm having a, a stressful time. Uh, but that's what it is, is guardianship and conservatorship is, is the court process where when somebody doesn't have capacity, either physically or cognitively, to be able to make their own decisions, then the court sometimes has to step in and appoint someone to do that for them. Um, and you had asked me, why is that? Why does the court have to step in and do that? Um, well, one reason is because the person didn't do their own planning to begin with. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, the other is that they have done planning, but it was really poor planning. And so we can go through some um, scenarios and situations of what someone who tried to do planning, uh, but it didn't quite hit the mark. And then the last one is that they actually did really good planning, but that planning is not being honored, either by the person who did the planning um, or by uh, institutions who are being presented with the planning documents, and they're just not honoring them. All right, so when it comes to guardianship or conservatorship, what's the best way for people to avoid using the courts? Right. So the first, as I was talking about, is actually doing planning, right? So what does planning include? It includes putting together the right legal documents so that you can maintain the highest level of independence possible while going through a disability and how you maintain that independence is actually naming somebody that you trust, that you know, 
that it's going to carry out your stated desires, right? Instead of substituting their own wishes or just taking over or just not having anybody at all. So the first document we always recommend is a financial power of attorney. Um, that allows you to name somebody else to be able to pay your bills for you if you're in the hospital or pay your bills for you if you've got memory loss and you are uh, forgetting to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes what happens a lot is people get solicitation letters and they think they are bills. And so now they start sending a lot of money to places where they shouldn't. Um, so a financial power of attorney is a document that allows someone else to step in when you start having those missteps of your own. Okay? And, you, and you want to be very specific. You don't want to say, my children, you want to have a specific child. A specific person. And we actually like a hierarchy, which means that you would name one person, and then you would name backup individuals in case that one person can't do it for you. Because just like something could happen to ourselves, Things can happen to our agents as well. So we want to go as deep as possible. Some people will ask, can I name co-agents? Because I don't want to hurt the feelings of my children and think that I love one more than the other. And that's respectable. However, it's not recommended. Um, because at the end of the day, you want one person with that decision. If you've got two people, they might disagree. And then that's where poor planning comes into place because if they disagree, then you're back in the court and you're having the court basically do the old nursery rhyme, any, many, miny, mo, mm -hmm. you know, which tiger is going to catch your toe. And <laughs> so um, the court doesn't have a whole lot of knowledge of the background of your family and you certainly probably don't want all that to be aired out, you know, to strangers. Right. And I tell you that the reason why this topic is so important to me today as always, but I just finished a very litigated guardianship matter that we started in October, and um, the hearing was days upon days upon days, and uh, we just finished it yesterday. And so um, it can be costly. It can obviously take a lot of time, and it's very stressful on everybody involved. Um, and that was a situation of poor planning. And I can talk about that a little bit more later. Um, but the financial power of attorney is the number one document to really assist in making sure bills are paid. The number one document, yeah. not the only document. Not the only document. The second one I would recommend is um, the healthcare advance directive. Now, that has an ambiguous name. Yeah. Um, and so, what that means in a lot of um, areas is just what's called a living will. Now a living will um, is a document that only expresses whether you want life support or not if you're in three conditions. A vegetative state where your brain has no activity, a coma where you're unconscious but your brain still has activity, and a terminal illness with no reasonable expectation of survival without the life support. Um, and so there's that document, but that document really is there to protect doctors because they need to know, do we hook you up to life support or do we not? That document alone does not help the individual very much. Um, and what I mean by that is it doesn't allow you to name an advocate for you to make day-to-day healthcare decisions. And so that's where, in Georgia, it would actually be called the Georgia Advanced Directive for Healthcare. 
And in 2006, Georgia came out with a form that combines the health care uh, power of attorney, if you will, with the living will. So now it's all in one document. Um, but what it does for someone is that it allows you to name an agent, and of course you want your backups, to be able to make day-to-day healthcare decisions if you can't do it yourself. Again, because of either verbally you can't communicate it or you don't understand because of cognitive uh, issues. It also allows that person to make arrangements for where you're going to live and where you're going to receive that care. So maybe hiring home health care to come in, maybe moving to an assisted living or a nursing home. If somebody's in a hospital, um, it allows them to make discharge plans. Um, but most importantly, in my opinion, it allows your agent to be able to get access to your medical records so that if something's gone wrong with your medical care, you have somebody who can actually order the medical records. A lot of people think that a spouse can just do that on their own, mm-hmm. and a spouse cannot do that. That's private information under the HIPAA laws, um, and certainly children can't either. And so having that power of attorney is very helpful. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned the Georgia form for the health care advance directive. Do these forms and the financial power, do these transfer from state to state? Or if you move to another state, do you have to have it redone? Right. So first of all, it is important to know that these are template forms. And with regard to the financial power of attorney, I do also want to mention at this moment that um, in um, 2018, Georgia changed their financial power of attorney laws, which also changed the standard form. And I highly recommend that uh, people who did their powers of attorney for finances prior to 2018, that they get a new one. Uh, Because they may not even be accepted in the state of Georgia, Mm. uh, much less cross state lines. But the way they're drafted, they should cross state lines. However, I always recommend that when you move from one state to another, you always have your documents reviewed by a lawyer who specializes in that area, not a general practitioner. You know, somebody who actually uh, sees what happens on a day-to-day basis when powers of attorney don't work. And you say not a general attorney, so that would be an asset protection lawyer, estate protection lawyer, lawyers with those terms. Yes, that elder care lawyer. Elder, okay. Okay. And so then what they're looking for is not only is it signed properly, does it meet your desires and goals, uh, but does it have everything that that state actually requires? So, for example, in um, Georgia, we can put a document in place like a financial power of attorney that is effective either today, so that way if I have my crisis tomorrow, it's good. Or we can put language in there that's called springing powers. It springs forward to an actual event that's identified in the document. That would be, for example, this document is not valid unless two physicians say that I'm not able to manage my own finances. That's a springing power. So if I put one of those in place in Georgia, that actually would not be valid in Florida because Florida does not recognize springing powers of attorney. So that would be an example of where you might have to do a new one. And it's that kind of answer that you'd want to hear from a lawyer um, versus you just cross state lines, therefore you need a new one. Um, That's not good enough, right? The difference to me is that lawyer wants steak for dinner instead of hamburger for dinner, so he's gonna tell you that you need a new one whether you do or don't, right? So when you ask that question, certainly I would say, 
always get it reviewed. But be a good advocate and find out why by law should it be changed. Now, sometimes it meets the legal requirements, and by law, you don't have to change it. But that's one of the things that we do in our office is we identify, again, not only does it meet the minimum law requirements, but does it actually do what you need it to do when you're going to be facing that crisis? All right. Okay? All right, Victoria. So we're talking about planning so you can avoid court. You've mentioned financial power of attorney and the health care advance directive. That's all we need, right? We're good to go? That's the basics that you need. Okay. I, um, I knew there'd be more. <laughs> and like I said, sometimes... Um, even when you have the right document, financial institutions won't accept a financial power attorney, okay? And so that's because they are afraid of being sued if somebody steals all your money. And so a document that actually has more teeth to it, more strength, is actually a trust where you would own your assets in a trust. And then it's your backup trustee that would start managing your assets if you become disabled. And a backup trustee, if you own your assets at a certain bank, for example, and they are in the name of the trust, the bank cannot deny access to the backup trustee as long as they show that they, in fact, are the backup trustee and you are now incapable, whereas they can deny accepting a financial power of attorney. So trust can be used in that way in order to make sure that if you become disabled, your desires of financial management are still carried out. Great. So you have all these documents, and that helps with the planning part of mm -hmm. staying out of court. Mm -hmm. Do we need more than just, just, we've got the plan in place, now what? Well, a lot of people will go to a lawyer in private, it's confidential as you know, and they'll do their documents, then they'll take them home, and they'll hide them away somewhere in their safe deposit box or, you know, in a shoe box, I'm not sure where. Um, but they won't tell anybody that they've done it. They won't share their goals. They won't share their fears. They won't share their desires with their family members. Um, and without that communication, then you might as well not even have the documents because no one's going to know that you have them. Um, but even if you do tell them, hey, I did my stuff. It's in the safe deposit box. The key is in the third drawer in the desk. When there's a crisis that happens, just go get the documents. That's at least a start, right? Mm -hmm. But the documents don't always flesh out what's most important to you, especially on a day-to-day -day basis. And I used to work in a nursing home, and I did hands-on care for people. And if they couldn't communicate with me, all I could do is the best I knew how to do based on my training. But if they could communicate with me, or if they had something in writing that says, look, I don't like ceiling fans blowing on me. I don't like grits. I don't, you know, want to be sit in front of a TV that has basketball on it all day long. I, I prefer football, you know, something that lets me know who they are, what they like. Um, then their care is definitely going to be a lot better, right? And that can be provided verbally. Um, certainly, we also recommend that's in writing because it may not always be your family members who know you who are going to be providing that care. You might be relying on a stranger. And so the more you can communicate who you are, what you like, what you don't like, the better your experience is going to be, the higher quality of life you're going to have, and the more independent you will stay. Great. Okay, so obviously planning is a huge part of it, but also communicating the plans with everybody, especially the family. So 
best case, hopefully, at least the, the very least, you've got power of attorney. But if for some reason there's a breakdown, it doesn't work, what happens then? So when it doesn't work, let's say, for example, um, you have fighting family members. So whether you have the documents in place or not, you've got children that just don't agree on what's in the best interest. And let's give them all the benefit of the doubt that they all have the best interest for the person they love. It's just they disagree on what that best interest is. So one And I will add on a personal note, because I've seen this and gone through this, you can love everybody and everybody gets along and you all agree on everything, but then once the death happens or whatever or something happens, when, when people have a chance to get things, they just become savages sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Um, and so this is even before death, and unfortunately the loved one has to go through it with them as they're fighting. And so in a situation like this, let's just say that the, the best interest um, ideas are different. And so one person thinks that mom should be able to stay at home with home health care. Another person thinks that mom should actually go to assisted living because maybe there's more socialization there. Um, and so that's just a different in opinion. And let's say that mom, through poor planning, actually named both those children as co-agents on a document. Well, who makes that decision? Um, generally, the one that's always been the stronger personality than the other. I could say so many things here, but I'm trying yeah, to be The one nice. that yells the loudest. <laughs> the bully. It's like just, just because you yell the loudest doesn't make right. you more correct. Right, right, right. Um, so... Uh, so what would happen in a case like that is if they couldn't resolve their differences, then one of those people, if they really think that mom is in jeopardy and needs a different level of care, then they would go to the probate court. They would file what's called a petition for guardianship over the person. Or if there's been mismanagement of money um, or if they just want control over the money, they would file um, a petition for conservatorship. Both of those can be on the same petition, okay? So it's one process if you're seeking both of them. And anytime you file a petition, there's fees, of course. And so the average fee in Georgia for a regular emergent, uh, for a regular guardianship slash conservatorship is about $600. Then if you need a lawyer on top of that, and if it's because people are disputing, you definitely need a lawyer on top of that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about spending anywhere from five to fifty thousand um, dollars on a litigated dispute between family members. Um, in the case that I just finished, um, there were two two private lawyers, a court-appointed lawyer, and a guardian ad litem, all of whom are lawyers, all of whom get paid at some point by somebody, right? And one of the um, hearings we had. Uh, which we did an emergency petition, which is a whole different process than what I'm explaining here. Um, that was two full days. The regular guardianship process, which is the one I'm describing here, that was four days of lawyers in court all day long. Um, so, you know, at the average hourly rate of somewhere between 200 to $500, you can well imagine how expensive that can be, right? Mm -hmm. So they filed a petition the proposed ward, the one who needs help. They're going to um, need to have a court-appointed doctor's evaluation uh, to assess their capacity. Um, they're also going to be assigned a court-appointed attorney for them unless they hire their own attorney. Um, and then 
once the evaluation by the doctor is returned back to the court, the court will schedule a hearing if there's any evidence that yes, they might need help. And so then the hearing is scheduled. And so from the first filing of the petition until when you have the hearing, that can be anywhere from about six to eight weeks on average. It can definitely in some smaller courts be a lot longer than that. Um, and so then you show up for your hearing and in non-contested cases, um, the hearing's about 20 minutes. But in contested cases, as I just shared, this one that I just had has been spanning about six months and all total was about six full days of hearing, of testimony. Um, so then at the end of it, the court makes a decision. Now, depending on how short or how long and how complicated or not, we'll decide if the court makes a decision on the spot or not. So the one I just got out of, the court did not make a decision on, on the spot. And so it's been a couple days and we're still waiting for a hearing, I mean, we're waiting for a decision. And as you can imagine, that's even further stress for the families waiting. Did I win? Did you win? Who actually is going to be able to protect in the way they think is the best interest? And it's really not about winning or not. It's about getting someone in place so that the person can be protected in the best way possible. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of time, a lot of money, mm -hmm. a lot of stress. It all circles back to planning and then communicating to avoid courts or at least to go through the court process a little, little bit more seamlessly when it comes to guardianship and conservatorship. As we get ready to wrap up th this subject matter today, Victoria, and a reminder, you're listening to uh, Victoria Collier, and this is Senior Salute Radio, brought to you by the Estate and Asset Protection Law Firm of Victoria Collier. Any parting words? Well, I would say, you know, it's not just communication from the person who's putting their plan in place to the others around them, their support system, but it's also communication among the support system because many of these issues can be reduced or eliminated just through good communication among siblings, among family members. And we have to realize that there's lifetime of issue there and it's not gonna be fixed in one day but it certainly can be broken down in one day mm -hmm. just by somebody not sharing information. And so when we're talking about taking care of a third party, communication among the support staff, if you will, the family, um, is more key than anything else. And it's about being mature adults doing the right thing. Um, otherwise, you're in court. All right, for those that have questions or would like to talk to you about it, where can they call you? Where can they get more information? Right, so our website is a great place to start, and that is elderlawgeorgia.com. And Georgia is spelled out, so that's elderlawgeorgia.com. And our phone number is 470-235-7848. That's 470-235-7848. Great, Victoria. Well, you've been listening to Senior Salute Radio. It's a bi-monthly show bringing timely information for leading-age boomers, and it's available 24-7 online by going to SeniorSaluteRadio.BusinessRadioX.com. Thank you, Mike. I want to thank our listeners. We salute you. Thank you.